This episode of Gospel Riot is brought to you by Relight. It's a free Reformed theology and Bible study web app made by a husband and wife team named David and Sarah. One of Relight's goals is to emphasize the interrelatedness of theology and scripture. And they have this great feature called Reference This Verse. Here's how it works. Say you're studying Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, under reference this verse, you'd see that this passage is referenced in each of the Westminster Standards, Keech's Catechism, and by the London Baptist Confession. That's because those documents use this verse to support a point that they were making. So you can just click on through, and you can see how they did that. You'd also see that John Calvin referenced this passage in his commentaries on other parts of Scripture, like 2 Corinthians 5, Matthew 6, Isaiah 42, and several other passages. It's all about that interconnectedness. And they built Relight in a way that as they add resources, these connections will just continue to automatically grow. What are you waiting for? Go to Relight.app. That's R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot A-P-P. Relight dot app. Hey, Wes. It's Heath in South Carolina. I just wanted to ask a question. When is the appropriate time to use the care emoji on Facebook? Thanks. I appreciate this. We're really just cutting through the nonsense and getting to the important things of the day. The care emoji. What is this little yellow sad man that's hugging a heart? What's what's he for? What's the purpose? So it came out in uh, April of 2020. I looked that up. Uh, It came out right around the time that uh, COVID was ravaging the uh, entire planet. And it seems like the reason for it, the purpose behind this little guy, was to either show that you were sad that somebody had gotten or had died of COVID. Or maybe it was a way to show solidarity with somebody who was feeling incredible anxiety because they'd been locked in their home and forced to wear a mask and their job was lost and the economy was destroyed. Um, I'm not bitter. Nope, stop. I am not going to allow the care emoji to bring my show down. So for the longest time, I refused to use it. I wouldn't use the care emoji because I didn't trust it. (laughs) I didn't trust this little yellow person glaring at me with his whiny little face. Um, You know, I think the real way that I use the care emoji is... uh, Have you ever heard that in the South, they say, bless your heart? when you're an idiot and you're expressing something dumb. Uh, that might not be the only way, the reason I use it, but I think that's the the funniest and most, most appropriate way to use it. When somebody says something that's idiotic and you're like, oh, you sweet little thing, come here. Let me, let me hug you. Let me wrap my yellow little arms around you and we'll cry together because you are so, so dumb. I think that's the most appropriate time to use it. If you'd like to leave a voicemail, you can call 772-324-9328. And hey, if you could, please head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review for the show. It really helps, especially here in the beginning, as we're getting rolling along, to uh, to get lots of downloads. So please subscribe and uh, listen to all the episodes. But uh, also, if you could, just leave that five-star rating, leave a review. Maybe I'll read some on the show. But uh, that helps it get up on the charts. The new and uh, the new release charts. That's uh, it's an important time for a podcast right now. So if you appreciate what I'm doing and you want to see it keep going, please, please head over to iTunes, leave a five star review. Today on the show, we're talking about apologetics, defending the faith. 
you're out there sharing the gospel, people are going to have questions. And the big question for you is, how do I prove that Christianity is true? All that and more today on Gospel Riot. Welcome to Gospel Riot. I'm Les Lanfear, and right here in the studio, I'm calling this uh, bedroom that I've turned into an office a, a studio. There's no beds in here, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing we had to do, was get rid of the beds. Uh, my friend, Cy Tenbruggen, Kate. Cy, thanks for, thanks for being here. Am I, am I pronouncing that right? Tenbruggen, Cy? Oh, yeah. Yes. Tenbruggen, Kate. That's right. That's the Bruggen. English version. In Dutch, it would be Tenbruggenkate, but I will Bruggenkate. not. That's not bad. Close? Not bad. Tenbruggenkate. It's the ch, you know, the Dutch, uh, like you're going to spit. Yeah, and you're 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 from Canada. A lot of right. a lot of Dutch. Hey, am I your first studio guest? Yes. Hey, wow. I love it. We're calling it a studio. <laughs> it looks like a studio. Nice. Um. So, Sai, you uh, a couple of years ago, we were at a conference, uh, and you were walking around making your rounds, and you were wearing a Calvinist T-shirt. Uh huh. And I got a picture with you, and um, it was the, you did something really cool that I'll always remember. Uh, so we, we kind of met, I think, I think we'd met before that. No, that was the first time. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. You're avoiding me. No, no, actually it film. wasn't. It wasn't the first time because mm. we met at, uh, the James White Strawbridge. Oh, I didn't know you were there. In Orlando. We met. I picked him up from the airport. A lot of people don't James know. James White? No, no. <laughs> Just Strawbridge. Strawbridge. Yeah. Nice. Oh, no, no. Um, uh, Greg Strawbridge. Sorry. Greg. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we did meet there and then, but at, at this, at G3. Were you a sprinkler then yet or? No, oh, okay. no, I was on James White's side at that Oh, debate. wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, at, at G3, we we talked a little bit, and then you sat down, you asked for my advice, and uh, you sort of laid out a situation you were going through, and it came down to a conviction on, you know, an, an issue that, that was important to you. It's also important to me. I think you knew that. And you were asking, you know, just thinking it through with me, and I don't know, the way you were leaning in your conviction and the decision you had to make, you know the conversation I'm talking about, right? I, I'm, I, I'm 57. <laughs> Mental hiccups. I'm sure that if you reminded me off air that yeah. I, would, I would clue in. Well, Does any, it have to be with the issue that we just talked about or no? Uh, no. Hmm. It has to do... Oh, right, right. Okay. Based on your conviction, you were making a very hard decision. Right. Uh, and I think it's, it's a decision that most people wouldn't, wouldn't make because their desire would have out, outweighed the conviction, whatever. So that conversation just elevated my respect for you in, in a, in a, a huge way. Cause uh, I don't know. A lot of people just don't take their convictions that seriously. And a lot of people would have disagreed with the decision you made even, but, um, but I, I don't know that sticks out in my mind. So I just want well, to, I, I appreciate that. that brother. Yeah. I think that there's um, one thing that surprised me most in ministry is the animosity between Christian camps. That people do not give their brother grace and and just sit down and say, well, let's see what the Bible says about it. And I think there needs to be a lot more of that among Christians. Amen. And that's why um, I hope this podcast will identify those types of things. Me too. And not riot. <laughs> <laughs> well, a different kind of riot. Okay. <laughs> right? Taking, taking the kingdom by storm. And, Amen. Uh, it's a spiritual battle, not one with flesh and blood. Amen. So you are in town because you are giving a, a talk at a conference on the issue of apologetics. And that's, Correct. That's something that you've, you've been doing for a while, right? Mm-hmm. 12 years full-time since uh, 2008 in May. Left my job as a factory worker, as a boiler operator for a large automotive company. 
What kind of boiler are we talking about? We're talking about um, boilers that uh, heat water and make steam to either run turbines or, or do you say turbines down here? Mm-hmm. And um, they also, in the place that I work, they use it in the paint process. Process. I have to remember where I am in order to know how to speak. We can so, we can understand Canadians for the most part. <laughs> to heat and cool, actually use steam to cool places, which is kind of an odd thing. But so that's what my trade was. It's um, because pressure vessels, if they blow up, they could take out a city block. So I was licensed to operate them, you know, to keep them safe. But the interesting thing is wherever I worked, it's the piece of equipment that we hardly looked at. So we were responsible for maintenance of all the other equipment. That as well, but they basically ran themselves unless you did stupid things. I know you have a uh, particular emphasis in in the way that you do and promote apologetics. Right. So let me ask you this first. Um, what's the difference, if you could boil it down, between evangelism and its in its all of its you know meanings uh, versus apologetics? What's the biggest difference? The more I do this the more I see that there is no real difference, mm-hmm. that evangelism should be apologetic. So people have called apologetics pre-evangelism. I disagree with that. Mm. And one of the things that brought me to that conviction is I would be doing apologetics, and people would say, how do you get to the gospel from here? And I was really convicted by that. I thought, if you have to ask me how I get to the gospel from my apologetic, I'm doing it wrong. Yes. That my apologetic should be evangelistic and vice versa. So, um, you know, now I say, uh, people ask me, how many people have you brought to Christ with this apologetic? I say, every one of them. But what they do with them when they get there is not up to me. That's great. So you're bringing them face-to-face with God, with Christ himself, and now it's up to you to... Yeah, trying to expose the folly of a worldview without God. So it's evangelistic in that, you know, part of the gospel is that we're sinners. and They don't believe they're sinners. Right. And I say that every thought that you have that does not give glory to God is sin. And I'm going to explain that to you apologetically and then show the, you know, what you need to do to get out of that situation, the hell that each and every one of us deserves. You do a lot of street um, apologetics, evangelism. Uh, can you tell me about, a little bit about how you got into that and, and why you're so passionate about it? Well, I, um, like I say, I worked in a factory most of my adult life, and I loved sharing my faith with people, trying to get them to become Christians apologetically. And the arguments that I would, was using, I'd get them shoved down my throat. And I didn't know why. And I discovered later that most of them are terrible arguments. They're not even logical. They don't make sense. Christians love the arguments because the conclusion is true, because God exists. And then by the grace of God, I was introduced to a debate, Greg Bonson versus Gordon Stein. The great debate. The great debate. And people should uh, look it up on YouTube if they yes, haven't they listened should. to it yet. Mind-blowing. Oh, I was, and every time I listen to it, I get something knew out of it. And I discovered that it was, that he was a proponent of something called presuppositional apologetics. And I was actually working on my website to put it out there. And it was very evidential in nature. And I'm sure we'll get into uh, talking about that. And my Christian friends loved it because I think one of the things I've been gifted with is taking difficult arguments and dumbing them down to my level. So I was working on this website and then um, I, I was using these arguments at work with unbelievers. Is this proof that God exists? Is that the website that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah. And, and it was, it was, um, very evidential at first. I came across that website before I was even reformed, before oh, wow. any of that. Uh, I had no idea. You know, I, I don't even think that I, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it, I'd taken, out there. I was taking all these arguments, dumbing them down to my level. My Christian friends loved it. I was showing them that, and they said, so you got to get this out there. 
But I started using these arguments at work that all my Christian friends loved, and I'd get them shoved down my throat, and I didn't know why. And then I later discovered it because I wasn't even talking about the God I believed in. And so I shelved the project for like two years. It never affected my faith. I still had a strong faith, but it affected my desire to share my faith. Mm. And then I saw that debate, found out it was called presuppositional apologetics, and I Googled it, tried to find it, and I could find nothing online about it. And I found one podcast out in California by a guy named Gene Cook Jr. It was called The Narrow Mind. And you could still find archives of that stuff online. Try to eat the mic a little bit more. And it was, it was amazing. It was the only thing. And I ended up being on there like four times. If you go to my website, you could see the interviews that we had there. And then I changed my website to be presuppositional in nature. And I'm, you know, we'll get into that as well. Mm-hmm. And people started loving it. And you know who I found loved it the most is people who actually share their faith, who had the same experience of me getting all these arguments shoved down their throat. Mm-hmm. And the people who share their faith a lot in situations with unbelievers are those who are out on the street. So I was not a street preacher prior to that. Prior to that, I was against street preaching. I was, had all sorts of arguments about why it was wrong and mostly because I was afraid to do it myself yeah, and of my own pride. So, um, but they were hearing these arguments and they started to invite me to conferences. And then through that, I started going out on the street as well because before the street preachers, when an unbeliever would come up with an argument, they'd either raise their voice and talk over them or ignore them because they didn't know how to um, engage them. And now that they saw this biblical apologetic, they would stop what they're saying, they'd engage a person, expose the folly of unbelief and then keep preaching. And it was that community that really embraced the apologetic. And I think it's because of that um, association with that community that things... The street kind of, preaching community. Yeah. And it kind of blew up that way. And then I would start to get uh, interviews and on the radio, do debates and speak at conferences. And I've never really advertised what I do. It's just been by word of mouth, by people who actually share their faith. How do you think those... Um, how does street preaching differ from just like kind of going throughout your day and, you know hopefully having the courage to talk to people. That are- well, I think in street preaching particularly, you're going right into the lion's den. You know, you might encounter unbelievers at work. You might encounter them on the street, but you don't necessarily engage them. On the street, when you're talking to people, you are engaging unbelievers. And you get people who are hostile to what you're saying, people who you don't know. And I think that's a different way as well, because I'm, I'm not for friendship evangelism, but you have friends and you have family, and I think the approach is a little bit different to them because you got to work with them every day. You got to see them every day. So whereas the street preaching community, you know, it's a pretty um, stark, it's a pretty uh, in-your-face type of presentation, whereas you might not do that with the person sitting across from you at the dinner table. Yeah. So <clears throat> don't, don't, before I, I go on, there's mm-hmm. people who say street preaching community, I think of Westboro Baptist Church. There are freaks that do this. And one of my objections was that going out there, they think you're one of those freaks. Yeah. And so you have to apologize for them a lot of times before they'll even listen to what you're saying. And yeah. thankfully, sometimes they recognize immediately that you're not like those people. But there's a lot of people who won't do it for that very reason, the association with the freaks that do it. Yeah, it's got to be hard to overcome. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why um, my goal when I go out there now is to go out and love people. And that has been a transition. You know, Before I was out there, I think mainly to win arguments mm-hmm. and to expose the folly of unbelief and not to go out and love people. And um, what was the real transition for me was hearing people argue exactly like I did. And it made me sick to my wow. stomach. I heard them, you know, winning arguments. And I'm thinking, these people are going to hell. The argument's already won. We don't need to win arguments. You know, the way we talk will be in such a way that the argument is won. But we have to love these people and recognize that except for the grace of God, that's us. So more often than not, I go out, 
you know, to the abortion clinics, to the university campuses, and just go out to love them, hopefully in a way that Christ would. Because how often does a group of street preachers go to a, 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 a campus and they say, well, those guys were nuts, but man, they loved us. Mm. It's just unheard of. And so a lot of, you know, and that turned my stomach. So I actually don't do a lot of it anymore because there's not a lot of people that I would do it with. I found even in, you know, groups that I would preach with often, I'd, I felt like I had to get up and apologize for them. You know, and I think we have to recognize, again, that the people we're talking to are us, except for the grace of God. And, you know, I was a little bit more of a snot nose early on. I would say, you know, if I wasn't a believer, I'd be arguing just like you, except a little bit better. <laughs> but I don't even say that anymore because I think, you know, that's a little bit too much in your face. But Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So you're wearing a shirt right now mm-hmm. that says God exists and you know it right. with, a, with a finger pointing right at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, that's kind of a summary of your entire philosophy of... There's a of, verse under there too. What do we got? Romans uh, 1, 18 to 21. Yes. So that's Paul pointing out the the suppression of truth. Um, so the, the world already knows God exists because they've been made in God's image and they live in God's world. And, and Romans 1 talks about how nature itself is basically crying out the existence of God, the, the divinity of God. And, um, and then people are suppressing that truth. Right. So that, that uh, based on that premise, uh, your entire uh, apologetic sprouts out. And can you, you want to talk about uh, a little bit of sort of the people that you learned it from? Yeah, sure. Well, it was Greg Bonson mostly. Just about everything he has done has been recorded. And and I used to have to download those lectures. It was $2 a piece at the time. Then I went down to $1.50. But thankfully, they've been giving out this library. Apologia is um, a recipient of the library and a few other places as well. So you can now get these lectures for free. But I was listening to these Bonson lectures and, you know, it was blowing my world. But he's still a brilliant guy. Yep. You know, PhD, I think he had two PhDs, way above my level. So I listened to them over and over again, dumb it down to my level. And I think that's really what um, I've been doing with the apologetic is taking these difficult concepts, dumbing them down to my level, but not only that, taking them to see how they look on the street. Mm. Because even when they're dumbed down, if people do not, you know, show how that looks when you're engaging an unbeliever, it's useless to me. So that's, that's Greg Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Now, so you're the third generation dumb downer (laughs) because Bonson was dumbing down Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, who's sort of, you you'd say is the the grandfather or the mm-hmm. the really the I don't know the guy who systematized it in a way that people really started to get on did, did he coin the phrase presuppositional apologetics I, I believe so the, the thing is people say well, have you read this book and sure. my answer is no okay <laughs> because I have all the books but usually I'm a chapter and I get bored out of my gourd and I fling them across the room but most have of you my read always ready no Bonson's I have it book. I read a couple of chapters I so think good. the one that I was most close to getting through was uh presuppositional apologetics stated and defended. And that was my favorite um, of his books. But again, most of my learning is passive learning. I'm more of an audio, I listen to audio lectures and things like that. So I've listened to hundreds of Bonson's audio lectures and then taken what I've learned. And a lot of it is repetitive because he would go to different camp or different campuses and give his lecture series. And I might get one new nugget out of it and then try and put it into a story that I could help explain it to other people. Yeah. So... Start breaking it down for me. What what exactly are we talking about when we are engaging people based on the idea that they already know God exists? Right. Well, I think the easiest way for me to contrast it is what I used to do. Somebody came up to me and says, I don't believe in God. And I would try and give them evidences and arguments to try to convince them that God exists. 
And then I became uh, familiar with the presuppositional approach. It basically says everyone already knows that God exists. They already Romans, know. Romans chapter 1. Mm-hmm. And I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I read that passage in Romans chapter 1 and then went out and tried to prove that God exists to people yep. when the Bible says they already know. And then I came to understand that people evaluate evidence according to what they already believe. And the way that I, um, that I present that, I say, look, let's say you put a fossil between a PhD geologist who's an unbeliever and a PhD geolo- geologist who's a Christian. And they look at that fossil, and the unbeliever says, um, millions of years, or billions of years. The believer looks at that same fossil and says, Noah's flood, thousands of years. Now, they're both PhD geologists, experts in their fields. They have vastly different conclusions based on the evidence they've just seen. Why do they have different conclusions? Not because of the evidence, but because of the beliefs they take to the evidence. Mm. And we evaluate all evidence according to our presuppositions, our foundational beliefs. So it makes no sense to argue evidences when we argue them, when we examine them according to what we already believe. But Christians do that too. Because the unbeliever will say, dead men don't come back to life. We say, yeah, but I have a presupposition that the Bible is the word of God. And in this case, a dead man did come back to life. So they're called rescuing devices. So it makes no sense to examine evidence when it will be interpreted according to their presupposition. So I would examine the presuppositions. But I think the, the key thing that really helped me um, understand the apologetic is the courtroom analogy. Because most Christians, when somebody says, I don't believe in God, they say, here, let me give you some evidence for this God. And I say, where do you hear evidence most often out in the world? You hear it in different fields, but you hear it in the court of law. In court, who do you give evidence to? You give it to the judge or the judge and jury. An unbeliever comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God, and you give them evidence. Who are you saying is the judge and jury? Them. And in which seat in that courtroom do we place the Lord of glory? We place him in the criminal's box. Now, God has given us wonderful evidences. We can win that court case. You can get him off the hook. You can get him off the hook. And then the unbeliever says, yes, you've convinced me that God exists. But who's the judge? Right. They're still the judge. And if evidence could convince you into Christianity, it follows that evidence could convince you out. So, so, so really, if you flip the script and what really should be happening is it's almost like the unbeliever is un, is not aware of the or he's suppressing the fact that he's in the criminal box and you're trying to show him uh hey wake up buddy like you're you're actually you're in the trial and you need to recognize that you need to start appealing right. for yourself to the judge um, and that's only possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We and put, so that's why that's why evangelism and apologetics have to go hand in hand because you can't just leave them hanging. Because we have to recognize who God is and who the unbeliever is in light of who God is. And I think the other apologetic methodologies do not are not consistent with that view. First of all, that people are without excuse for their sin against the God they know exists and that God is the judge. So people ask me for a definition of this apologetic. I say it's defense of the faith that honors Jesus Christ as Lord. Yes. You know, we don't get to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We start with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And people start the Great Commission with go therefore. And they try and defend their faith. But the reason that we go out and share our faith is because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. It's already his. Right. And we try to argue for his authority by giving it up. I'm not doing that. That's not the God I believe in. The God I believe in has the authority. He is the authority. I'm going to start there and finish there. And that's what differs this apologetic methodology from all the other ones. I don't merely conclude that God exists. I start with the fact that everyone knows he exists. That's great. So um, so you're talking about evidence. And right. 
one of the straw men that gets uh, maybe maybe you help help me through this mm-hmm. um, is that presuppositionalism uh, says that evidence is bad yeah. and we should never use evidence. Um, but you are saying that presenting evidence to an unbeliever to prove the existence of God is a bad thing. So so what do you mean that so is evidence a bad thing? Well, evidence is a gift from God, and I think there's very many ways that we can use evidence is even in our apologetic. Now, if somebody says to me, I use evidence to convince people that God exists, I say, absolutely not. The Bible says they already know that God exists. Yeah. But if somebody says, I use evidence to expose the suppression of truth to the unbeliever, I say, go nuts. Mm-hmm. Not only go nuts, show me. Do you know how many people get back to me and show me how they use evidences to, express, to expose the suppression of truth? Nobody. Yeah. And that's the problem, because I want to work with people who use these evidences to expose the suppression of truth. To go after sin. But, but, right. but, but most people's emphasis is the evidence is to prove the existence of a God, right. maybe not even the God of the Bible. Right. Well, this is an analogy that, that I've come up with. Somebody comes up to you, and you're standing beside your lovely wife, and they say, yeah, I, I think your wife's a, a hooker. I think she's a prostitute. So last night uh, she was making dinner for me, so I, I don't think she was walking the street last night. And the night before that she was at Bible study, so I don't think she was walking the street that night. And let me see, the night before that she was visiting her parents, so I don't, I don't think she was walking the street. Yeah, I don't think my wife is a prostitute. Would you say that? You'd say, buddy, that's my wife you're talking about. You better be careful with the next words out of your mouth. Mm. But somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, I really don't believe in God, or I think Allah is God. They just called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, a liar. Mm. And we say, well, let me give you some evidence for his existence. I mean, if somebody were to insult our wife, we defend the honor of our wife more dearly than we defend the honor of our God. I say, what is more dangerous for that person to insult your wife or to insult your God? So they're, they're blaspheming. They're calling God a liar when they say they don't know. Now, would I give evidences in that circumstance? It depends on how you do it. And you say, look, buddy, you happen to know that that's not true about my wife. That guy that she was kissing in the bus station yesterday is her brother. She was dropping them off. So you might give evidences in a way. And the same thing with the unbeliever. Look, the God of the Bible says that you know that he exists. When you say that you don't know that he exists, you're actually blaspheming him. Now, what is your issue with the God of the Bible? And let me go through those things and try to explain you know, how that doesn't make sense, even according to your worldview. So when we talk about worldviews, um, it's kind of like a bias, right? Is the Because we see that all the time. Everybody right. can admit that we're biased and you know this hyper-political world we're living in. We're all in these echo chambers, and everyone kind of recognizes that right now. Like, we're so divided because all we're hearing is our own echo chamber. And and that's basically what a worldview is, but it's going on inside your own brain that you, you've you already made up your mind about particular um, foundational elements of how the world works and how, th- you know, how logic works and morality, and we can get into that stuff, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, if you've already made up your mind, if you're already biased, then now out of that bias, that's how you're going to judge everything. And I think Bonson used the apple sorting machine. Is that a yeah. analogy that? Yeah. Um. So you're 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 always you're already programmed to figure out what a fact if if a fact is true or false. And so uh, Christians have a worldview, a bias, and then unbelievers have one. And then you know everybody they might vary based on your own system of thinking. Um. But so, so you're saying that the most important thing is to get not, not at the surface level objections, but dig down to the foundational parts that are causing people to falsely or, or uh, it, to, it, to 
yeah, falsely um, identify these facts? Well, I would say, you know, I really don't even care about digging down or anything okay. like that. And I think maybe early on that used to be the case. I'm just saying defend your faith, but stop lying about God. Because they're talking about a God that I don't believe in when they defend their faith. So I don't really care how they do it, as long as they're consistent with what the Bible says, that these people already know that God exists. But, but what's, your, what's your approach? Do, do you try to, like if so, you know, somebody gives you an objection, obviously, do you, right. do you try, to, try to show them that, well, let's go a step beyond that because you actually are taking something for granted and then you're taking even now now that statement you're taking something for granted and then ultimately at the bottom of that pile Mm -hmm. there's there's their foundational things that they're taking for granted i would say that um i i do that on the streets with you know the philosophy student but again the thing that i think changed my methodology is seeing a lot of people arguing stuff like epistemology the theory of knowledge with somebody who has no idea what you're talking about. break that about. down a little bit more what's, what's, what's the theory of knowledge how you know what you know and sure that's one of the things that that i'm known for is saying to the unbeliever how do you know that how do you yeah. know that and i think that's a good way to expose suppression of truth but it's actually women that helped me understand this argument because i remember i was teaching one of my first classes and I was talking about the preconditions for intelligibility. And I would take logic, for instance. Logic is universal. It's not made of matter. It does not change. God is universal. He's not made of matter. He does not change. You can't make sense of logic in a worldview without God. And all true, all presuppositional, very good out in the street. And the guys were taking all these notes, you know, thinking, I can't wait to get to work tomorrow to crush my colleague. And the women were in the audience <laughs> falling asleep. And, and I went up to some of them after I said, you know, what's going on? How come you weren't gravitating with this? He said, before I, have to, I had to learn all the evidences, and now I have to learn the preconditions of intelligibility? Are you kidding me? So I'll go it to- It is a, simpler, though. Yeah, but I'll go to a conference, like I will um, this evening, and one of the things I said, you've asked me to teach you how to defend the existence of God. I say, I didn't tell the organizer, but I'm going to change things up a little bit. I'm going to teach you how to defend the existence of your parents. And they look at me like, uh, why do we get this freak from Canada down here to teach us how to defend <laughs> the existence of our parents? And I say, that would be nuts, wouldn't it? Why? because you know your parents. Not only do you know your parents, you know them better than I do. Wouldn't it be crazy for me to come down here and teach you how to defend the existence of your parents? And I say, what am I doing teaching you how to defend the existence of God? I say, if you know it, you can do it. So I don't teach people how to defend their faith. I teach them how not to. And I say, but I know why you've asked me to come to this conference, because in John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear sighs really good argument. They know my sheep hear my voice. Or in Romans 1, 16, the power of God into salvation is sighs good argument. No, it's the gospel. So yes, so I go out when I engage people and I try to share the gospel with them, the condition of them, who God is, their state before him. And then I might get an objection. And when that objection comes up, I will deal with it in a presuppositional fashion so I can get back to preaching the gospel. So whereas I think my early videos that people were critical of, all true and I think all helpful, but they were more about a methodology than about reaching the lost and loving the lost. Good. Okay. Okay. That, that that's that's very very interesting. So, and, and this is something that you're saying has sort of changed over over right. time. Right. Because I think evidentialists are duped into using evidences to try and convince people that God exists, and presuppositions have been duped in the same way. To rather than having a six hour argument about evidence, they're having a six hour argument about philosophy. Yes. When the Bible says they're fools. Yes. Instead of saying, look, except for the grace of God, I'm you. And women are much better at this. Oh, you don't believe any of this stuff? I'll pray for you, man. Have a nice day. Now that, okay, so this is so good. Um, because because I think this this points out something that maybe people uh, in circles that I run with a little bit um, have been bothered by, N- not not by you in particular, but sort of the, the there's been sort of a uprising. Um, it's become kind of, kind of popular to be, become presuppositional. And I think that, it's been 
so um, it's been simplified to the the idea of like you're saying, like you're just constantly asking, you know, by what standard and you know mm-hmm. on what basis can you say these things, and it becomes a very philosophical right. uh, debate. Um, and but I don't think that's what Van Til was doing, and I don't think that's what Bonson was doing. I think they were actually preaching the gospel, like you said, and when they would, and obviously, if you're talking to unbelievers, they're going to have objections, and so the objection always has to be uh, answered as if you're dealing with a person who who is suppressing the knowledge of the God who could save them. Right. Right? Oh, I think these things are, are good things to have in your back pocket. The problem is you don't need them. Because if you have to know the preconditions of intelligibility and all this philosophy, you could not defend your faith. And Jesus said, I will give you words and wisdom that your adversaries will not be able to resist or contradict. Not Cy, not William Lane Craig, not Greg Bonds. Jesus said, I will give you the words. Now, it's nice to have those stuff in your back pocket. Absolutely. But the more I do this, the more I realize it's unnecessary. I'll tell you a quick story. This fellow, he was a missionary in Ghana. And a friend of mine, he said he went to school for four years to study biology so he could become a better apologist. And then he's doing this mission work in Ghana, finds my videos, and he said he saw his grandfather, who never spent a, a day of school in his life, learn to read by reading the Bible, out sharing his faith with somebody. He say, and the guy would say, I don't believe the Bible. He says, it's foolish not to believe the Bible. You must believe the Bible. And he's, you know, university degree in biology, seeing how ignorant his grandfather was. Now he realized that his grandfather was doing it the right, right, the, the right way the whole time. And he said he went to school for four years to learn how to not think like a Christian. And a lot of these methodologies are teaching people how to not think like a Christian recognize that they know that God exists. So our presupposition is that God exists, his word is true. Anybody who knows the Bible can argue from that position, and I say that's a presuppositional okay. argument. Okay, that, that, so that is the, the real beauty right. of this entire way of thinking, in my opinion. All you're doing is sharing the Bible, because the Bible is our presupposition. It's the thing we're taking for granted right. as true, whereas... An unbeliever, especially like so, an atheist, for example, is taking. There are no atheists, <laughs> right? Right, but somebody who would profess to yeah, be an I atheist. Yeah, uh, Yeah, sure. There are no atheists because mm. I know God exists, and you know it. I have that you shirt. I'm an a atheist, but yeah, because you don't believe in atheists, right? <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, so, so their presupposition, the the atheists, quote unquote, presupposition is you know Big Bang, uh, millions of years, evolution, all this, all this stuff that they believe that's where we came from. Um, so now you have, it's a game of dueling, dueling right. worldviews. But so if, but so if we can acknowledge that and not be embarrassed by the fact that I take the word of God to be the word of God, God has spoken, he's revealed himself and I'm done questioning it. I, I was, uh, subdued by this God Amen. and I no longer have the opportunity. I, I don't have the luxury of questioning it anymore. And, and I would never want to, because that's my only hope. So I'm going to take all. I'm going to take that and I'm going to act like this is my ultimate authority. And so that's going to come out in the way that I engage with people. And I think the biggest problem with that is just stop being so embarrassed by the fact that this is God's word. And even though that atheist thinks you're an idiot, so be it. This this is a word of foolishness. I, I love that, the way you put it, brother, because that's what this apologetic does. It gives you confidence to share your faith. Yeah. Now you can have some of the philosophical arguments in your back pocket. You don't need them. But it's nice to have that foundation to know that, you know, even if the person brings an, up, an objection to what you're saying, you can answer that philosophically. I'll give you an example. I was um, out preaching outside uh, where I used to work, actually. I, I didn't work there anymore. 
And it was, um, I think it was a good Friday. And the preacher was up there and we had a horrible heckler. You guys are crazy. You believe in a talking donkey. You believe in a man was in a fish for three days. A man came back. You guys are nuts. Right. And the preacher didn't know what to do with it. He was sweating. He was nervous. And one rule in open air preaching is he don't steal the person's heckler. Hmm. Because then they'll gravitate towards you and the preacher looks like an idiot. Like he doesn't know what he's talking about. But he looked like he was in trouble. So I went, I put on the other mic, you know, those headset thing. I went and stood beside him in case he needed help. And he said, Sai, get up here. Get up here. <laughs> so I got up there and I said, buddy, I said, I know you think I'm an idiot. I said, I do believe in a book that says a donkey talked. Yep. That a man was in a fish for three yep. days. I do believe all that stuff. I said, I used to work in that building over there. I said, if they saw me standing out here, they'd think I was an idiot too. I would say, um, but you would, you would admit that God could do those things, right? Yeah, if he exists. I said, so your problem isn't with miracles. Yes. Your problem is with the God of miracles. Yes. Yeah. And most Christians are trying to prove miracles to these unbelievers. Right. Or explain them away. Well, right, right. you know, this could have, you know, whatever. Like, I said, your problem is with the God of miracles. Yeah. I said, here's the, here's the problem, buddy. When you have a problem with the God of miracles, you can have a problem with miracles. Mm. Why not? Because you're going to try and tell me that my Bible's not true because of all these miracles. Yeah. Where do you get truth without God? And then I would expose philosophically the, the problem of their position. Now, yeah. you don't need to do that. Well, well so you're, but it's you're, saying, you're saying you don't need to do it, but I, I, I do think that it's all, it, it is a paradigm shift in your mind. Right. And so, yeah, you don't need the exact argument. This, this is the way it worked for me. And I never did uh, open air preaching. I never did street preaching. I never, mm-hmm. and even, even abortion ministries is something I, I want to do, but you know, I'm, I'm a sinner and I never get around to the things. No, that but I you preach, you do. preach from the uh, theater. You preach from, well, no, I mean, Marcus, my friend used to say that too. Yeah. He stopped preaching for a while on the street. He says, I preach from the shelves of Lifeway because our film was out there at the time. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't. I just don't. You know, I, I think I, I skirt a lot of responsibilities. I don't want to be let off the hook uh, too too easily. Okay. <laughs> um, but so so the way it worked for me was I I learned these philosophies and like you said and you said it really fast. So let's, sorry let's, about that. No, it's okay. So let's slow it down for a second. The preconditions for intelligibility. Right. And uh, I I think that it's hugely important. And like Sai saying, you don't actually have to make these arguments every time. Um, you know, verbatim. You don't need the script on on how to answer these things, but it, it's just super important, and it's such a, a way to bolster your own faith. Right. Just knowing it's like, wow, there's no other way. There's no other way to think about this. Um, and those preconditions are what are they? Morality, science, uh, uniform in nature, logic, truth. All of these things are necessary to make any argument to have a rational thought. Yes. So, so in order to even be intelligible, right? To to say a thing that makes any kind of sense uh, and is agreeable by any other person, because we there's something we have in common, and that's kind of the question. It's like, why do we kind of think the same way, and why do we kind of think morality is the same thing? Now, we might have disagreements on on some moral issues, mm-hmm. but but there's there's some kind of universal consensus on the idea that there is right and wrong that uh that you know and and you know you could say like well nazis believed this thing was right and we no longer believe that's right well what that actually does is is undermines the idea that it's a social construct it can't be if we're disagreeing across cultures but there's still a moral a moral so but, but anyway the presuppositional way to look at that is to say that these preconditions that make any kind of conversation intelligible, this makes humanity intelligible in general. Um, the only foundation that they can come from is from the Bible, and every other worldview either takes them for granted 
or has some completely inconsistent explanation for where they come from. Yeah, that's that, right. We hold the mirror up to their worldview. Because the unbeliever will say, I don't believe that God exists. And I do not get them to try to prove that God doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can't do that. You can't prove a universal negative. But I say, you say that you have a world where there is no God. That's fine. I mean, it's not fine, of course. But that being the case, how do you make sense of your objection to this? How do you make sense of truth? How do you make sense of logic? Right. Just to hold the mirror up that without God, they can't make sense of any of it. And one thing I want to emphasize at this point, too, is that most apologetic methodologies try to get the person to see the truth so that they repent and become a Christian. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we're doing exactly backwards. We're trying to get them to see the truth so that they repent. But the arguments in, uh, that I present to the unbeliever is not to get them to see the truth. It's in the hope that the Holy Spirit uses them to open their eyes so they have something to be converted to. Okay, so that's a human nature issue. So you're, you're well, say, I you're say it's saying, a spiritual issue, yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so, And I think that's part of the uh, problems of the other methodologies. They're trying to get the person to see the truth so that they repent. When the Bible says they're dead. Which is, I, I would say, an, an evangelism problem in general. Absolutely. With differing ways to look at things where essentially evangelism is sort of a sales pitch that you're getting someone to make a better decision. Right. Whereas, you know, I think the the biblical way to understand the nature of man and what grace actually is, is to say that, no, you're actually dead in your sin. And, and part of that deadness, it's not, it's not dead. Like, you know, your brain isn't functioning. It's deadness as in slavery to sin. Right. And you actually need to be supernaturally set free from that. Right. And that only happens through the gospel. Van Til um, had this analogy where he said there was a man who worked his entire life to bring up to on a potion to bring the dead back to life. He worked on it his whole life and he finally perfected it. So he made a hundred vials of this potion and he put it in a box, he threw it in the back of his pickup truck with a table and he raced to the local graveyard and he set this table up with these hundred vials of the potion to bring the dead back to life. And he yelled out, come and get it. Wow. And that is sadly, I think all the other forms of apologetics and evangelism saying, come and get a potion that they can't get. Salvation is of the Lord. Wow. So we have to be consistent with what the Bible says when we defend our faith in the hope that God saves them, regenerates them so that they can see the truth. And most people are doing it the exact opposite way. So I tell people, I say, do not approach this apologetic with an open mind. Approach it with an open book. Mm. Show me in the Bible where what I'm saying is not consistent with Scripture. Because I believe that all the other apologetic methodologies, not willingly, because I used to um, follow them myself, but are getting people to abide by an apologetic methodology rather than what the Bible says. So I have a sermon that's online somewhere. It says, apologetics is easy. Read your Bible, believe what it says. Mm. And now I do a lot of encounters. You've seen them. I do debates. I do stuff on the street. My predominant thought at the end of the day after having those encounters is not I need to read philosophy more. I need to study science more. My predominant thought is I need to know my Bible better. Yes. And that is the power of God into salvation. I had a friend come up to me at a conference once, and he said, uh, Sai, I hear you're a really good apologist. Will you teach me? All I do is answer with Scripture. I said, don't listen to a word I say. I say, if you can do that, do it. Because mm-hmm. the Word of God, that's Amen. the power. And people are embarrassed. You see people at abortion clinics arguing the science. Yeah. You know, and... What a waste of time. And you could even maybe have a save out of arguing the science. But they're still going to hell. Yeah. You're prolonging the inevitable. So it's a matter of, I think, preaching the truth of God's word. You know, giving an, uh, the offer of salvation to people. 
And that's what we need to do when we defend our faith. And Jesus' sheep will hear his voice. Because, you know, Scripture says there's two types of people eternally. Goats will end up in hell, sheep who will end up in heaven. One thing that Scripture never says is goats become sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Now, we don't know who the sheep and the goats are, so our apologetic methodology must be feeding sheep. And what do we feed sheep with? The gospel. And the guy flips you off and walks away, and, and, you know, you think, oh, no, I've I've made a mistake here. I've missed. The guy's not. You didn't miss. God's word is sharper than a two-edged sword. So if that guy turns around and walks away because you shared a gospel truth with him, if they are a sheep, Jesus' sheep will hear his voice. Maybe not that day, maybe not the next day, maybe not 20 years from now, but Jesus' sheep will hear his mm. voice. And we're trying to go out there with apologetic methodologies to convert goats. Mm. That's impossible. I've got this kind of picture that I've, that I don't know, the, the way that I've thought through all this, uh, sort of like the way to view what's going on. And nobody's recognized my brilliance in it yet. Um, it's my cross. <laughs> this will be the first time. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, you, you t- like t- tell tell me if this is a helpful way to sort of. Br- so, I I say you know imagine if you could go outside and we could all just look up in the sky and God's face was there, and so now there's the obvious reality. There's God, um, but we want to behave the way that we want to behave. So we all collectively get together and we invest in a big curtain that we can close over God's face. Okay. So in the back of our minds, we still know he's there, but you know, we've, we've covered him up. We, we don't want to think about that anymore. But then we have questions in our lives that need answers. And those questions are only served by God. So we come up with, you know, something like God and we, we prop it up there in front of the curtain on our side so we can see something, you know, maybe that's a Buddha statue or maybe it's a, a book by Darwin, uh, something to answer some of these big questions. Cause we still need answers. So, um, so then an evangelist comes along into this situation and starts trying to tell you, uh, no, actually there's a God behind that curtain. Um, and he's the one who created it. and all this junk in front of it, this isn't going to help you. Um, and you know, everybody's responding, no, 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 that guy's not there. Here's part of the thing. And this is part of the reason why I think it's so important what you said about how evangelism and apologetics are actually the same thing and driving towards the same thing. And I think people kind of know that, but they, they don't act like it. As long as you're telling them there's a God behind that curtain, here's the problem. It's not just that they know he's there, and it's not just that they want to do what they want. The biggest problem, and in, in my mind, is the fact that if they were to reach up and pull that curtain open, they would be face-to-face with their judge, not their, not their friend, their judge. So it would literally be suicide to reach up and open that curtain because now God— they're looking face-to-face with the God who is angry, furious with the way that they've lived their lives and replaced him. So that's the biggest problem, and that's why we, you know, we talk about inability. We can't open it because it would be suicide to do so. So the, the missing piece in all of this, the fact that they, they, they can't come face-to-face with God, they actually need a solution to that relationship problem. So yes, yes, explain to them that there's a God back there. But way more important, because they already know he's there, is a, the reconciliation that you need with that God. So, so that when you open that curtain, he's not your enemy, but now he's your loving father. So as we're explaining to them, try, trying to make an apologetic for the existence of God, uh, you always have to be saying, he has made a way in Jesus Christ for all of your sins to be absolved, to be washed away. 
and for you to be accepted by him as your loving father. So you're pulling the curtain back and you're looking face to face into the eyes of your loving father instead of your judge. No, we have to make Christ sweet to them. That's exactly right. But let me help your scenario a little bit. All of them saw the face of God and they were on the curtain building team. Yes. You know, it's not like they know there's a God. They know the God. Yes. And they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But you're exactly right. We have to make Christ sweet to them. And I remember one place where it particularly hit home to me because I didn't know if I was doing it right because I I was um, uh, saved very early in life. I don't know when I was saved. And I saw these people sharing their faith with people on the streets and being very harsh. And I thought, well, these people know what it's like to be an unbeliever. They know what they needed to hear to be saved. So I didn't say anything. But I was at a campus uh, up north in northern New York, and it was a very liberal campus. And there was some terrible stuff going on. There was a guy who had a penis drawn on his chest, you know, and women, you know, were taking their tops off and stuff like that. And my friends were out there rebuking the sinners for their sin. Now, I think there's a place for that. Sure. But that's like going to a dog kennel and rebuking dogs for barking. Dogs are going to bark. Their issue is not that they sin. Sinners are going to sin. The issue is that they need a new heart. And it kind of snapped for me. So I got up on the box there and I just pointed out the vilest offenders. I said, I love you. What are you doing here, you freak? I'm here because I love you. And I shared a gospel message with them. And then I sat away from the crowd on the wall and they had all different signs. And I had one sign that said love on it. That's all it said. And I had a guy come up to me wearing a sweater. He was the guy who had the penis drawn on his chest. And he says, man, I got to apologize for the way my fellow students are behaving here today. I said, I know. Some guy had a penis drawn on his chest. And the guy dropped his head in shame. He said, oh, I'm so sorry for that, man. We had a wonderful conversation because that's the thing that we need to do as believers is make Christ sweet to mm-hmm. them. And Jesus' sheep will hear his voice. It's not about argumentation. It's not about the methodology. It's about making Christ sweet to them, being consistent with the Bible teaches. And that's why I say everybody can do it. And that's why at this conference, the, the tagline is the last apologetic conference you'll ever need. Because I say, you know, what if I call myself instead of an apologist to love your neighborist? And we're going to have an eight-week course for a thousand bucks on teaching how to love your neighbor. You know, I can do that. I know how to do that. I said, well, you're supposed to know how to defend your faith. But the problem is the world is saying, no, you have to do it this way. Because, you know, I don't have a table full of dinosaur books when I go speak to people. I say, read your Bible. You can't sell, read your Bible. And I'm not saying that's the reason that people have other apologetic methodologies. But when you recognize that most of the stuff you've put out there is unnecessary for teaching people how to defend their faith, I think they have a lot invested in doing it in an unbiblical fashion. Now, again, can we use these evidences in our methodology? Yes. But do it in a way that honors Christ as Lord, not in a way that calls him a liar. Amen. Well, let's take a break, and we'll listen to some voicemails, and maybe you can help me answer some of those. Okay. We'll be right back with Cy, Timbrook, and Kate. You know, I'm just going to keep telling you about my movies until somebody buys this ad spot, right? My name is Les Lanfear. I'm a filmmaker. I made a movie called Calvinist. It's about the resurgence of Reformed theology. And I made another movie called Spirit and Truth. That one is all about Reformed worship. That one's uh, very interesting. And I think the church would do very well to, uh, to check that movie out. They're both available on Vimeo. They're uh, available in hard copies. And uh, if you go to calvinistmovie.com or if you go to spiritandtruthmovie.com, you can check both of those films out and you'll be doing your part to help support Christian filmmaking. The good kind. It's a documentary. It's not It's not a, like a terrible, weird Christian movie. Ad spot still available. Welcome back to Gospel Riot. I'm here with Cy Tenbruggenkate. And he's going to... By the way, I'm going to help you with something with, with my name. Yes. Because I would say the you in my name 
the There's no other word in the English language that has the same U as my name. And then somebody says the word push. So there are there are some. But the Sai U ten. in bruh. Saiten Bruggenkate. Like push, push. Saiten Bruggenkate. Yeah, Bruggenkate. There you go. Okay, I got it. Back with Saiten Bruggenkate. <laughs> and we're going to listen. And Ten listeners. is part of my last name, by the way. A lot of people call me Cy Bruggenkate. Well, I was at a conference once and I said, I see you got a lot of books in the lobby by Corey Bohm. Mm. And they all yell out to me, it's Ten Bohm. I say, why do you leave it off of my name? Ten Bohm. Corey Ten Bohm. Ten- yeah, that's right. Yeah, also Dutch. Dutch. All right. Those Dutches. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> wooden shoes, wooden head, wouldn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cy Ten Bruggen Kate. Very good. And we're going to listen to some voicemails. Here we go. Hi, Les. This is Jeff from North Carolina. My question is, what do unbelievers really know about God, the one true God? And how might we be able to use that knowledge in our apologetic and evangelism efforts? Some might say that's all we've been talking about this whole time. Amen. But... Um, as far as extent, thank you, Jeff, by the way, uh, for calling in. Uh, as far as the extent of uh, the things that unbelievers do know about God, um, well, you know, do, do they know everything? Is I, would, there... I would sum it up, sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation. Mm. And what that entails, I'm not exactly sure. Some people read the King James Version, and it talks about the Godhead in Romans 1, as far as the Trinity. Are they aware of the Trinitarian nature of God? I don't know about that. I think that you're working on a project that might I delve into some of those think things. Not. But the thing is, I would say that there's some aspects, whether they think about it or not. Sure. But for instance, God is love. That doesn't make sense unless there's plurality in his being, because mm-hmm. who did he love before there was creation? That's good. So there is an aspect in the thing which they would know that if pressed by, because other uh, Unitarian religions cannot make sense of those aspects of the, the, the nature of God. And you might um, highlight that. But I, I'm confident in saying they have sufficient knowledge of God to leave them without excuse mm. for their condemnation, not sufficient for their salvation. That's why we, pre- and very interestingly, people say, what about the people in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa? I said, well, if they didn't know that God exists, sending missionaries would be wicked. What are you yeah. talking about? I said, if they didn't know that God exists, it follows that they would have an excuse. We go out there, tell them about God, tell them about Jesus Christ. They reject them. And now they're going to hell. Doesn't make any sense. You should have left them alone. We should have wall building teams yeah. to stop the missionaries from getting in there. You know, so but we know that they have sufficient knowledge of God for their condemnation, not for their salvation. That's why we send missionaries to teach them about Jesus Christ. So God has revealed things in the scriptures that simply are not revealed. Right. They cannot come to the knowledge of salvation through nature. Yeah. Now, can God reveal that to them supernaturally? Sure, I believe God can do that. Does he normally do it? No. You know, people say if God knows who's going to be saved and that, why do you preach? Why do you pray for them? I say, Does God know if you're going to have a full stomach tonight? Yeah. Why do you eat? Now, can God fill my stomach miraculously without me eating? Absolutely he can. He's God. Can God save people without people praying for them, without sending a preacher? Of course he can. But the normal means that by which he fills my stomach is yes. by my eating. The yeah. normal means by which he saves people is by sending preachers, by yes. people praying for them. And that's, I think, the biblical methodology. Very good. Uh, all right, let's do another one. Hey, Les, I was just wondering if you have some suggestions for how to steer conversations towards spiritual matters, particularly with people that you've just met. Thanks. What a great question. I was with a a team of uh, youth from the church that I'm attending in Canada, and they're going door to door, and they knock on the door and say, we got got pizza at the church. We want you to come by and, you know, have some pizza with us. 
And then the people would come and they'd share the gospel with them. Oh, yeah. You would just want to sell me on this stuff. You don't want to feed me. Bait and switch. Yeah. And I can't stand the bait and switch. And I said, you know, I talk about this in my film, How to Answer the Fool. That very thing, pizza at the church Friday night. And they were offering pizza at the church Friday night. And these youth were very eager to listen and eager to learn. I said, we got something a lot better than pizza. Mm. So I said, when you go to the door, say, look, you know, we are part of this community here. We love the people of this community. And we're concerned for your eternal state. We want to know, where do you think you'll go when you die? Where do you think you'll go when, when this is all over? And they'll say, well, I'll, I'll go to heaven. Why? Well, because I'm a good person. You share the gospel with them, and you show why that's not the case. Or that's a gospel conversation. Now you start talking with these people 10, 15 minutes you're out the door. I said, you know what? We got pizza at the church. If you want to come by and finish this conversation, we'd love to have you. What a totally different thing. You talk about the thing that's most important. And if they show up, then you can talk about the gospel with them. It's not a bait and switch. And I'm saying that that's probably my most incons- inconsistent thing as well. Talking to your neighbor, you know, you, well, I, I don't know the guy very well. I'm not going to share the gospel with him. Yet he might think I'm a freak. And then, you know, you lend him your lawnmower, you lend him your tools. And, and then a year later, you say, well, you know, I'm actually a Christian. Let me tell you what I believe. Oh, that's why you let me use your lawnmower. <laughs> that's why you share, you freak. Get out of my face. You know, and I think that as Christian, we say, look, I'm a Christian. I really concern for the souls of my neighbors. You know, yeah. have you ever heard the gospel? Now that, you know, I get it. People ask me, what's the two biggest obstacles to sharing your faith with unbelievers? Fear and pride. And the reason I know that is because I fight it every time. And if you're waiting for that to go away to share your faith with somebody, you'll never do it. Yeah. And I fight it every time. Before I go out on a street preaching thing, very often it's the case that I'm thinking, oh, I hope it rains. I don't have to go out and do this. But I tell you, every time on the way back, I'm rejoicing for that opportunity. And if you're waiting for it to go away, it will never go away. So be concerned for them. I say, love your neighbor be concerned for their eternal state and share the truth with them, how they can be made right with the God that they know exists. Mm. Yeah. There's just this natural sinful shame that we have for the Lord, which is, is so that's like Paul in Romans seven, like the things I want to do, I don't do because right. you do love Jesus. Like if you're a Christian, you know, I, absolutely. And I do too. I know I do. I do love mm-hmm. Jesus, but there is this natural tendency for me to be ashamed of Jesus when, when I have to, uh, bring it to people that I know aren't going to like me personally because right. of it. Because the thing is, there's so many people in the world doing it in such an unbiblical, unchristlike way. You're out sharing the gospel with somebody, they think you're Westboro, yeah. Westboro Baptist. And I was at this college, uh, this campus, one of the first times I was out in the street in North Carolina with my friend Dustin Seegers, and he was preaching. And it was a cool day that day. And people were walking by without a jacket on. I had no problem saying to them, you really should have a jacket on today. You know, it's kind of cold. Why aren't you wearing a jacket? Do you think I could tell them that they needed Jesus Christ as Lord? Right. No, because then they're going to think that I was the guy there calling women sluts the week before for wearing miniskirts. Yeah. They're going to think I'm that guy and they're going to reject me. Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking I don't want that. Now, the more you do it, the more that goes away, but it's still there. Yeah. You fight it all the time. Well, I mean, even I'm not even comparing myself to Westboro. I'm just realizing that like, it's just an unpopular opinion to have. And people are going to think that I'm a little weird. Right. Uh, which is such a shame. And, but the thing is, the problem is a lot of people that do it are weird. Yeah. You know, well, and we're all weird. <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's true. But I think that if you have a genuine concern for the person, if you don't love people, don't share your faith. Yeah. Because first of all, you're probably not a Christian. <laughs> but if you don't love people, don't do it. If you love people, and I think that's one thing about this apologetic methodology, is that when you share with your faith with people, they know you're telling the truth. Because the way I used to do it, I used to share my faith in a probability. Yep. Look at these evidences. There's, yep. They're very likely there is a creator, and now I'm going to argue with you to say that that's God. 
That's not the God that I believe in. Mm-hmm. Like I say, in church, we say, nothing can separate me from the love of the Father. Tears streaming down our face. Then we go out and we talk to our colleague at work. You know, I could be wrong. But if I'm wrong, I die, rot in the ground, worms eat my body. If I'm right, I get to go to heaven. If you're right, you die, rot in the ground, worms eat your body. If you're wrong, you're going to hell. What have you got to lose? The day before in church, we're saying, nothing could separate me from the love of the Father. The next day we go to work, we say, I could be wrong. The problem is if you could be wrong, you cannot say in church, nothing could separate me from the love of the Father. Mm-hmm. You'd have to say, nothing can separate me from the love of the Father if I'm right. That's not very comforting. But if you are consistent with what you believe in church, when you're out there, it doesn't matter if they flip you off. It doesn't matter if they walk away. Of course, you have that pride. You want to be loved by people. But you know what I say to people is that I would rather honor my Lord than, than bow to your presuppositions. Mm. For so, just to answer this question, uh, for for me, um, and it really is. It's just a matter of overcoming that shame that you have for the Lord. I mean, because yeah, the whole the whole problem of even the question itself is is presupposing is that it's awkward. It's scary and it's awkward uh, it's to bring biblical. Up Jesus. Jesus said, "If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed right. of you." That's a scary thought. And that's and since we all sort of naturally understand that there's a little bit of shame or awkwardness or whatever, it's right. just something we got to overcome. Um, in my best days of being bold with the gospel, uh, I would just, you know, walk up to people or in small talk or whatever. And really the, the, the hardest question to get to was just like, Hey, are you a Christian? Because once I get there, then, then I'm, I'm ready to go. Right. And you know, they'll answer that they are, and you can't just take that for granted. So there's some questions I want to ask there too, but if they're not, I'll, I'll just ask, um, have you ever understood uh, sort of the the message that Christians believe in, the hope that we have, the reason that we're Christians. You've ever understood that? I'll ask that over against. Have you ever heard the gospel? Even because sometimes I don't think people even know what that really means. They're like, oh yeah, I've I've read the book of Matthew or whatever. Um, so I'll ask like, do you understand what Christians believe? And if you know they say yes or no, or if they say no, um, I'll just ask, would you mind if I explained it to you? And then mm. it's just you know I I got the main points I want to run through. Uh, sort of scripted out in my own mind, not like a memorized thing, right. but the, all the things I want to hit on uh, in order to, in my opinion, effectively you know cover the gospel. And when objections come up, uh, I I I think as a, a presuppositionally as I can in, in my response. Yeah, I, I would say I don't really have the gift of gab, and so and actually I'm an introvert when I'm out in the street. I'm an introvert anyways. You know, mm-hmm. for what I do, it's kind of surprising, but I like to get them to speak. And which is very you know weird because I'm on the street, you see me always talking, breaking into the conversation. That's because I know exactly what they're going to say. And I have to remember that they don't know that I know what they're going to say. So I would say, um, what do I need to do to be saved? And this is a very good thing for the cults, by the way. There are people who study the cults to the nth degree. But if the apostle Peter was evangelizing with you, he wouldn't say, I got to go run to the library and get a book on Mormonism before I go talk to these people. You know, so when we're evangelizing the cults, I would say, look, you've come to my door or you're on this mission out here. You must have a real concern for my soul. Can you do me a favor and tell me what the gospel is? Yes. What I need to do to be saved? Yes. And That's what they, I do. And they never have the gospel. You take, take them to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7. This is what the gospel is. You've come to my door with a different gospel. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 1, 8. If you come with anything other than this gospel, you're anathema, you're cursed. And the Bible says, not only did you do that, you know it. Yeah. You need to repent. Now, how many of these other experts in these other worldviews do you hear them calling the Muslim or the Mormon to repentance? for the sin against the God they know exists. Yeah. So what I will do, even some of the biggest opposition that we get on the campus is from the local Christian group. Yeah. You're doing it all wrong. Jesus would never do it this way. Can you do me a favor? Can you share the gospel with me? 
Tell me what I need to do to be saved. Right. I love uh, Ray Comfort's analogy. I got a knife in my back. Three minutes to live. What do I need to know? You know, and I've done it before. I've actually been laying on the ground <laughs> as this guy trying to share truth with me and not sharing the gospel. And um, my friend Chad Williams, he does this thing that I, I really like. The person says, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, really? He said, what do you do for a living? And he asks the gospel and he doesn't give a gospel message. What do you do for a living? I'm a welder. Oh, that's when you take two pieces of wood and you wet them. You know, you put them in a bucket of water and you hold them together till they stick. That's not welding. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're not a welder. I just asked you what the gospel was. And you gave me something that was not the gospel. Why should I think you're a Christian? Mm. You know, of course, it's confrontational. You do it with yeah, love, yeah, yeah. and I'm not beyond correction. But if the person professes Christianity, you say, oh, what do I need to do to be saved? And say, well, this is what the Bible act. This is what the Bible says. And that's why it brings you back to Scripture. You can correct their misunderstandings, and then you have to do less talking as well. <laughs> you know, yeah. you just say, you know, instead of laying out the gospel, which is fine if you're, you know, confident in doing this, which, you know, I, I would be confident in sharing the gospel, but I'd rather have them explain what they believe and show them the error of that in hopefully a loving way. Uh, let's do one more. Hey, Les, this is Bob Wright from Pittman, New Jersey. And I wanted to ask, what are the differences between presuppositional and classical apologetics? And what are the strengths and weaknesses with either position, either approach? Thank you, Bob Wright. So, yeah, that's a question I wanted to ask, and we never got around to it. Uh, what are the differences? Because because a lot of the people, I, I think there was there was a, a big popularity in presuppositionalism, and then um, the people, the sort of the circles I run in, I, I know a lot of people are kind of pushing back against it, and I'm kind of confused Me too. by that. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, what's the difference between presup and classical apologetics? Well, I would say classical apologetics basically is using argumentation, like the classical arguments, to try and get the person to a position that God exists. And these are philosophical arguments a lot right. of times, right? Right, cosmological, theological, you know, um, ontological arguments, which I used to be very good at dumbing them down to my level. Okay. And they're going to the existence of God. Now, the problem is the Bible says they already know that God exists. So even if you convince them that God exists with these arguments, they could turn around and say, yeah, okay, your God exists, but I didn't need him to get there. Mm. And it comes at a very high price that those arguments and the person's reasoning is at a higher epistemic value, a higher stature than the existence of God. You have convinced me with these arguments that God exists. But Romans eleven thirty six says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. Even your ability to argue. So I say God is not a God you can reason to. He's the God you can't reason without. So I'd say these, these classical-type arguments argue to the existence of God merely. Can you give me an example of the, a dumbed-down version of like the ontological argument? Or? No. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll now, the ontological... No, no, that's fine. <laughs> no, I'm just... The ontological argues, it talks about the perfection, that you have an idea of perfection, therefore you know yes. that this God exists. But all of these arguments are trying to get them to conclude God not start with the existence of God. Right. And the, you know, the teleological evidence argument. And a lot of them are logically fallacious as well. Like the teleological argument, the argument, argument of design, commits what is known as the taxi, taxi cab fallacy. That everything that exhibits design requires a designer, and that designer must be complex. And, you know, and, and then they say it must be a, a God, and then we're trying to get you to find out which God that is through argumentation as well. You say, but shouldn't that designer be very complex as well? And if everything that exhibits design requires a designer, wasn't the, why doesn't the designer need a designer? You know, and, and everything that we see... Um, and, and so, but both of those are problematic 
The, well, the tax God was not created, right? And also, God is simple and not complex, right? And and everything. So the taxicab fallacy is: I'm going to take the taxicab to the destination that I want, and then I'm getting out. But that taxicab is going to keep going, right? Okay. <laughs> and you have to answer those objections as well. And plus, it concludes that God exists, and it denies what the Bible says they already know. So my question, as a presuppositionalist, is: What evidence will convince you of the God who says you already have enough? What evidence will convince you of the God who says you already have enough evidence? And most often they give me a piece of evidence. Right. They say, this evidence will convince me of the God. I say, wait a minute, you didn't understand my question. Which evidence will convince you of the God who says you already have enough evidence? They'd have to understand it's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of showing them that they're already taking these things for granted. Yeah, and the thing is, I think it's important to say it, because not getting them to believe it, because they can't believe it. Just exposing the folly of, of that position so I say, no evidence could convince you of the God who says you already have enough. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a spiritual problem. You need to repent. And then, you know, I find a lot of people out. That's what I try to do. Dumb down um, theological issues and try and explain them to people. I say, you need to repent. What does that mean? And I ask them this question. I ask Christians this question. Is, some, is repentance something you say, something you think, or something you do? And most Christians will say, repentance is something you do. Repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. Repentance is actually something you think. And the question is, how do you change what you think about God? That's what right. they'll ask me on the street. I say, guess what? You can't. Have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> no, I say, you can't. I say, because if I tell you how to repent and you do it, and the guy beside you doesn't do it, then you could hold it over on them and say, look, I did it and you didn't. I'm better than you. Not repentance is the gift of God. I say they need to get on their knees and cry out to the God they know exists. Ask him to change their mind about him, and guess what? Then it will change what you say and change what you do. So it is actually all three, but it starts with a change of mind. So does that remove a responsibility then? If, if you're saying they can't do it, they can't change their mind, and we are calling them to repent, so does that remove their responsibility? Well, this is the and like I say, I try to dumb them down to my level, and I say, imagine there's a governor of a, of a state. hundred people get together, and they murder the governor's son. And they're successful in doing this. And they're caught and they're put on death row. And the governor comes and to pardon one of those people. Mm-hmm. I don't believe you're the governor. I don't think you're the guy. I don't think any. Yeah, I reject that. And they're, and they're killed. Now the question is, does that absolve the person's responsibility for murdering his son? No, it doesn't. Why are they being sent to the death chamber? Because of their sin. So if they reject these evidences and arguments, it does not absolve them of anything because they are responsible for the sin against the God that, that they know exists. Well, well, sorry, specifically I'm asking um, if you're saying they're unable to change their mind, right? then how can we call them to change their mind if they can't do it? Well, I say because the Bible tells us to call them to do that in the hope that the Holy Spirit grants them repentance. Belief is a gift of God. Repentance is the gift of God. So we do it in the hope that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to that. See, the Holy Spirit does not give good arguments. He does not make bad arguments good. He opens the eyes to good arguments. Mm. And that's why we present them. But So my, uh, my death row analogy is that they're without excuse. Yeah. You know, and people make that mistake in recognizing how unfair it would be for God to send these people to hell because they didn't believe Jesus. And that's just like how unfair it is for the governor to allow these people to go to the electric chair because they didn't believe he was the governor. No, they're going to that chair because they killed his son. Right. You know, so is the rejection of Christ also a sin? Yes. But you have enough sin in and of yourself to deserve that condemnation.
Mm. So would I be right in sort of summarizing that really the philosophy that you're trying to promote here is just be biblical. Just don't be ashamed of your Bible and, and share the Bible with unbelievers when they want to know about Jesus. And the interesting thing about that is then the unbeliever will start coming to you because now you're speaking truth. And uh, we, I don't know how much time we got left. I'll make, maybe close with this uh, analogy. I had a, a fellow, I said, you know who I want to talk to? I want to talk to the kid sitting in church slouching, arms over his chest, you know, cross, can't wait to get out of this nut house, this place where they talk about zombies. and You know, you know how they all, yeah. unbelievers talk. My buddy says, I got a nephew like that, sitting on the couch at his house like that. He's become an atheist, grew up in a Christian home. And his parents are afraid to talk to him because they think they're going to push him further away from God. They're afraid of their son now. I said, this is what you do. Next time you go over to that place, sit down beside him on the couch, put your arm around him. I love you, man. You might be fooling your mother. You might be fooling your father. But you're not fooling me and you're not fooling God. I know that you know that God exists and you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. If you want to know how to be made right with God before you die, you come and talk to me. But I love you and I'll pray for you. Do you want to go shoot some pool? Hmm. Now he's afraid of you. And a lot of Christians out there who are listening to this need to apologize to their loved ones for misrepresenting the God that they adore. And say, you know this God that I was trying to convince you that, that, you know, that, that, that exists? The Bible says you actually know he exists. Now, one thing I want to caution people, don't call them liars because the Bible doesn't call them liars. It says they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So you're actually suppressing the truth about this God. And I love you enough to tell you about him. And if you want to know how to be made right with him, you come and talk to me. Now, that person has a, has a tragedy in their life the next day or whenever. Who are they coming to? The person who talked about the complexity of the eye for six hours? The person who argued philosophy with them for six hours? Who told them there's no purpose in existence? Yeah, or the person who says, you want to know how to be made right with God before you die? You come and talk to me. And that's what we need to do as Christians. Go back to what Scripture says. Make Christ sweet to them. And sure, apologetic methodology that is consistent with honoring Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen. Well, Sai, thank you so much for, for being here today. Thanks for having me, brother. Really appreciate Look it. forward to being in your next movie. Can we reveal the secret project now? How to Answer the Baptist? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a joke. It's a joke. Uh, well, that movie might come one day, but it's, it's too not, early I'm not ready that. for it yet. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again. And guys, thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.